everyone and welcome to From Oil to Soil, The Shift with Isadora Spearwoman. Here at From Oil to Soil, we are reclaiming the discussion by reframing the discussion. For more information, visit www.o2soil.org. everyone and welcome to episode two of From Oil to Soil. Today we are honored to welcome Gloria Flora to our podcast. Gloria is the Executive Director of Sustainable Obtainable Solutions, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the sustainability of public lands and the plant, animal and human communities that depend upon them. She is also the founder of the U.S. Biochar Initiative, a nonprofit organization promoting the sustainable production and use of biochar through research, policy, and technology. In her 22-year career with the U.S. Forest Service, Gloria became nationally known for her leadership in ecosystem management and for her courageous, principled stands. As supervisor of the Lewis and Clark National Forest in north-central Montana, she made a landmark decision to prohibit natural gas leasing along the spectacular 356,000-acre Rocky Mountain Front, a place often described as an American Serengeti. In 2000, she made national headlines again when she resigned as forest supervisor of the largest national forest in the lower 48 states to call attention to anti-government zealots engaged in the harassment and intimidation of Forest Service employees and destruction of natural resources on public lands. Gloria recently co-authored a report on how Montana can become energy self-reliant through renewable energy, energy efficiency, and conservation. She serves on the Montana Climate Change Advisory Committee and works throughout the U.S. with the Center for Climate Strategies in assisting states developing climate change action plans. For her courageous stewardship of public lands and environmental leadership, she has received many awards, including the Wilderness Society's Murie Award, the Environmental Quality Award for Exemplary Decision-Making from the National Resources Council of America, a Behind the Headlines Award from the Project on Government Oversight, the 2003 Environmental Hero Award from Sunset Magazine, and being selected as one of the nation's top environmentalists in 2004 by Vanity Fair magazine. Her work has been featured in national magazines, books, radio, television, and documentaries, including now with Bill Moyers and in Leonardo DiCaprio's feature film, The 11th Hour. You can find out more about her and her organizations by visiting www.s-o-solutions.org and biochar-us.org. One of the wonderful things that it does is that when you feed biochar with just 1% by volume of their normal feed, you can reduce their methane outputs by 50%. What? Yes. Why is uh, everyone methane. not into biochar? This is amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, honey, you need to learn about biochar. I do. Uh, yeah, well, 
welcome to our podcast. I'm really excited to have you as an interviewee. I was reading your bio and just totally awed and honored at everything you've done in your life. It's pretty remarkable. And yeah, I would love to just ask, um, just to get us started, if just in a few words, how, how would you describe your passion, your mission, and the work you do, and then sort of tagging onto that, what, what is a core motivation for the work that you do? Oh, we're going to start with just some easy, simple questions. Yeah, start with some easy questions. (laughs) I view my core mission in life as helping people remember their connection to nature. And that includes myself. Um, We're completely dependent on nature. Um, Everything we need from food, energy, medicine, clothing, shelter, you name it, it all comes from nature, except a few things that we've perverted. Um, but all of our, our basic needs do depend on nature and do depend on nature functioning smoothly and efficiently and uh, providing all those ecosystem services. So my job as a planetary citizen uh, for the time I'm here is to uh, focus on that. Also, if you want to just describe the work you do, you already covered like your passion, your mission and the core motivation, um, but maybe just giving the audience a sense of what, what work you do in the world. Okay. Primarily, I work in forests. Um, that's, that's my love. Um, I have an affinity with trees and the, the tree communities that we call forests and all the other um, entities that uh, exist within that forest above and below ground and on four legs on two legs or roots. My work has to do with restoration, with preserving um, and protecting important areas, large landscape conservation, with um, addressing climate change, uh, biochar, which is and sits at the intersection of so many things that I do. Yes, absolutely. That's beautiful. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about, um, if you're comfortable, maybe like where you were born and raised and from what you can remember of your childhood, what were some of your earliest inspirations or experiences of being in nature and learning about ecology? Okay. Um, I was born and raised in uh, a small town, uh, the suburbs, almost rural, of um, north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I swore that when I saw the Rocky Mountains for the first time when I was 16, I was convinced that I had been born in the wrong place, that I was actually a Rocky Mountains girl. My, my love of nature started very early um, my parents were very interested in the outdoors, and we would often on Sundays go for drives and go to national parks or forests. And, and playing, I always played out of doors. Um, my girlfriends and I would build camps in, in the woods, and and, uh, and my Barbie dolls were always filthy and had dirt in their joints because they were always they would come out in the woods as well, and, and uh, they would do some primitive camping. <laughs> I just was outdoors all the time, and it made me love and appreciate what was going on around me outside. And so when we started taking, as a family, started taking longer trips, leaving 
confines of, of uh, Pennsylvania and, and heading to the west, um, that's when I started to see the big landscapes, the national forests, national parks, and I was completely in love. And so I followed that passion from there. I also really want to inform people about biochar because I actually was not quite aware of what it was before hearing about you. And I think it's just something people should know about and very empowering in the sense that everyone can um, do something and, and make it themselves if they'd like or buy it. Okay. Oh, well, look out. Yeah, bring it on. I love it. I, I love this. <laughs> Biochar is actually another drawdown solution. Right. Um, and so there's just as much to talk about with biochar mm. as there is about temperate forests. And, mm. and I am a somewhat of an expert in biochar. Uh, I've been working in biochar since I heard about it in 2007. And I started the U.S. Biochar Initiative in 2009 because there was not a nationwide organization focused on promoting the sustainable production and use of biochar, which is what I, I did for about seven years. Um, but I was trying to do um, by the U.S. Biochar Initiative and my, my nonprofit simultaneously, and I had to let one of them go. So anyhow, biochar is just um, basically it's charcoal that results from being not combusted necessarily, but baked. And so when, when, the, when the, that wood is baked, it actually retains 50% of its carbon, and it creates this beautiful charcoal. And we call it biochar because what we're doing when we put it back in soils, whether they're agricultural soils or forest soils or grasslands, it acts as, one, a reservoir, because all of those little pores and that surface area that you have on, a, on biochar, I, literally a cubic centimeter of biochar can have thousands of square yards of surface area. Mm. So you're putting this, this biochar or this char back in the soil to support the biology because what it does is not only it makes the soil um, physically um, increases the tilth of the soil, which is the, the fluffiness, if you will, of soil, but it also attracts and holds nutrients and water, making them more bioavailable to plants. It can reduce, in an agricultural setting or even in a forest setting, it can reduce your moisture needs, i.e. irrigation if you're in, in um, agriculture, by 30%. Wow. It, it holds on to nutrients and nutrients that are important for plants. And again, if we look at an agricultural setting, what do we do? We pour on nitrogen and phosphorus onto to our fields. Nitrogen and phosphorus are very mobile, particularly nitrogen, because it likes to either dissolve in water and, and head to the nearest water source, or as, and phosphorus does that too, but nitrogen can also become nitrous, nitri, nitrous oxide, the nitrogen gas that is 300 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. And so if you're putting that stuff on your field because you've been mining your soil by improper agricultural practices, 
perhaps, but not, even if you're doing it and, and being a good land and soil steward, it still likes to migrate. What does biochar do? It captures it and holds it. If it's in the soil, it's going to grab a hold of it, and, and but only with very loose covalent bonds, which allows roots, uh, rootlets from plants to pull it right back off the biochar. So what that is doing is it's preventing nitrogen and phosphorus from getting into streams. What happens when nitrogen and phosphorus gets into streams? They cause dead zones. It, it creates such a, an algae bloom and such a burst of plant growth because they're nutrients that it sucks the oxygen out of the water, which is highly detrimental to, to animals and invertebrates depend on some oxygen in that water to breathe. Mm -hmm. That's why you have these huge dead zones at the, the, the mouth of so many major rivers around the world. Um, so, but not only that, Biochar will capture and hold nitrous oxide. It can reduce nitrous oxide off-gassing from soil by 80% for at least three years. Probably longer, but the this, this studies that were done about it ended in three years, so we can't say that it's longer than three years. Mm. So, um, it, you know, as I said, biochar is just absolutely amazing. Have you worked with it? Like, have you done any studies in your own um, area that you live, or do you know of any? Oh yeah, there's there's been uh, there's there's thousands and thousands of studies and research paper and field applications and all that. I haven't even scratched the surface of, of the uh, the other wonderful things that biochar does. Uh, it's also we also call it biochar because it remediates. Um, and allows biology to reestablish. And, and it, just as it can pick up um, those nutrients, it can also pick up heavy metals. And it, is, it tends to be fairly basic, um, a high pH. And so it is very, very helpful in abandoned mine reclamation um, because it can um, reduce the acidity of acid mine drainage. Mm. Don't get me started on mining. <laughs> I've been working on that for 20 years. <laughs> so, um, but um, it, it also will, um, will um, allow regeneration of, uh, and, uh, and restoration of, of areas that heretofore have not been able to regrow any um, grasses or shrubs or anything because the soil is so tainted. So, yeah, there's a, there's a great example outside of Aspen. Colorado, um, a, a major stream that provides uh, some of their drinking water, uh, went by an abandoned mine. There's a, a you know a steep slope that they could not get to revegetate. And I'm saying they, they would believe it's in Forest Service ownership, um, could not get it to revegetate. Twenty some years, and they finally tr uh, tried a mixture of, uh, or they tried bio, straight biochar, straight compost, and a mixture of biochar and compost. And the mixture of biochar and compost produced amazing results. Mm. And they they were able to revegetate the the slopes above the creek, stop the erosion, stop the dumping of this this toxic soil into that creek. Um, and, and stabilize the toxins in the soil. Now, if you want to remove toxins entirely, um, and, and a lot of cities in, uh, are doing this now, 
is um, they, you can make pillows, uh, if you will, out of biochar, um, you know, biochar in, in a sack and um, put it in low-end areas that gather water and, and then and test the biochar periodically and it will pick up all those nasty things that come off our tires from or uh, and our automobiles, you know, oils. Um, biochar has been used for uh, in, in port towns in Washington. Um, a friend of mine, John Miedema, is a biochar expert, and he made a filtration system that the port of Port Townsend can use to filter the water coming off all of their old galvanized and metal buildings that are um, in the port area because they are leaching copper and um, lead and zinc into the bay. And copper, lead, and zinc are highly toxic to fish and aquatic life. Mm. And so the biochar filter, which is a sand filter combined with biochar, is picking up 95% of the copper and 99% of the zinc before it can reach the, the, the ocean. So, I, and, you know, I, I could, there's, the, you know, just south of here, there's been a, a really intriguing study by the Agricultural Research Service, which is a, a government entity, um, looking at the Palouse. The uh, Palouse is an area that used to be the breadbasket of this zone. Um, it's Idaho, Washington, um, southeastern Washington, Idaho area. Um, Beautiful, beautiful lush, deep, deep soils, wind deposited, and just tremendously productive until we started farming them and dumping a lot of chemicals on them. We've created a bunch of clay layers in there because of the chemicals. And so what we found with biochar is that adding biochar not only makes the soil much more looser, um, breaking up those clay platelets, but it also increases productivity of the plants. And I haven't even gotten into the whole productivity scene because it, it can... It literally can increase productivity in plants by 20 to 30 percent or more. Wow. Um, and and particularly the, the worse the soil, the, the more positive impact biochar can have. Um, and we haven't even gone into the Amazon as where we where we found biochar and, and and figured out what was going on. It was put there by humans to make jungle soils more productive, like five times more productive in the jungle. Um, and that's and the, the native inhabitants were doing that 2,500 years ago, mm. and that was why you read the book 1491 and uh, talking about the huge civilizations, the, you know, the cities that were along the Amazon that the first explorers talked about, and everybody thought they were full of crap because. It's like, how can you possibly feed a concentration of that many people? Because jungles actually aren't that productive in terms of, of uh, dense food sources that can supply a city in a concentrated area. Well, um, they discovered that the combination of, for, of scientists, soil scientists and archaeologists uh, overlaid their maps. And it's like, hmm, everywhere we have these pockets of deep, dark soil called terra preta, seems to be on an important travel route <laughs> that the uh, Indians were using 2,500 years ago or more. Um, and then when you started digging and actually examining, you find chunks of charcoal, you find chunks of pottery, you find all kinds of evidence that this was a, a human-caused wow. soil. 
And, and so uh, all we had to do was start unraveling that little question. Uh, why were they doing it? What were the effects of them doing it? Well, the effects are that it makes the soil five times more productive. How do we know? Because it's still five times more productive than the adjacent jungle soils. So biochar is the gift that keeps on giving. And, and it's just a, I mean, when I die, I want to be turned into biochar. So I do something productive in my afterlife. You know? Wow, I'm so inspired right now and just like my jaw is just hitting the floor. This is incredible. Oh, I, I haven't even, I just scratched the surface <laughs> on this. It, it's wonderful. I make it for the farm, not only for my plants and my orchards, but um, the I feed it to my livestock. I have sheep and I have an ox. Oh, my ox is remarkable. Six Aww. foot four at the shoulders. I just a, a stunning and beautiful animal. And uh, he likes biochar. So do my, so do my sheep. Um, and my chickens love it. One of the wonderful things that it does is that when you feed biochar, just 1% by volume of their normal feed, you can reduce their methane outputs by 50%. What? Yes. Why is uh, everyone methane. not into biochar? This is amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, oh, honey, you need to learn about biochar. I do. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, cleaning, filter, filtering water. I have friends that have been making water filters in India and Africa. Um, biochar stoves, if used in, in, in those huts and dwellings where, we, where people now have to use open flame, to cook their dinners, mm. that that open flame and the smoke that's generated by it, the lifespan of a woman who cooks over an open fire is 45 years old. If we can get them to use biochar stoves, provide them with biochar stoves, which is really easy. I mean, it's it's just it's a matter of, you know, a couple of bucks. Um, if they cook over a biochar stove, they can get the same heat with far less biomass being necessary. They can use garden waste, uh, woody woody uh, garden waste that doesn't compost well, um, and they, so they can reduce their impact on the forest. And they don't have to breathe smoke, so they have a longer lifespan. And then they take the biochar out and put it in their gardens. Wow. So. You know, I mean, what's not to love? <laughs> yeah, and it's, I can see how it's so connected also to the forest restoration of just, yeah, how it really all connects. It's fascinating, but here it is. It's, it's a solution from nature. When we just look and say, how does nature store carbon? How does nature keep trees and forests healthy? How does nature integrate all the elements in an ecosystem so that each of them are self-supporting but also dependent on each other mm. and then that allows nature to do all these ecosystem services which we cannot replicate for ourselves which are entirely we our lives are entirely dependent on what nature is doing cleaning water cleaning air producing oxygen taking co2 out of the atmosphere you know i mean yeah. We, if nature decides that uh, she's going to take a break from helping us, uh, we're all dead. I mean, it's that simple. Yeah. Well, we've really come full circle. That's what you were talking about in the very beginning about, yeah, how everything everything comes from nature. And I, I love like what we've discussed, especially with the biochar, because, of course, if something's good for nature, then it's good for us. 
And what's not uh-huh. good for nature is not good for us because we are nature. And it's, yeah, it's, this has been well so, mm-hmm. so inspiring. And I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I'll just end with a final question. Um, just if you had to leave us with one message or if you had just a few lines, what would you like the world to hear about climate solutions? It's a little little broader than climate solutions. Um, actually, it's, I, I would like to just read a, the closing sentence um, of a, a piece that I wrote, a short piece for a book called Global Chorus, 365 Voices on the Future of the Planet, edited by Todd McLean. It came out a few years ago. Um, but I wrote a piece um, talking about the eye of the needle. And so in closing, I said... So let us rise up, enfold our loved ones of all species, define, refine, love, and shape ourselves into the future, right through the eye of the needle. Wow. And that's what we're that's what we're up against. We're it's it's the eye of the needle. We we need to thread it. I believe we can, and that's what we're doing with these drawdown solutions, with permaculture, with forest restoration. We're showing how you can do it, and do it in a way that provides richness and 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 joy to people's lives because that's what we need we need richness and joy in our lives and richness not in terms of money but richness in terms of the ability to maintain our health and ability to share with each other the ability to share with nature the the three permaculture principles are the ethics excuse me are care for the earth care for people and fair share the surplus just think what the world would be like if we followed those ethics. Mm. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. For more information, visit www.o2soil.org. The following tracks were used as background music in this episode. Cello Duet Number 1 by Chief Boima and two tracks by Dream Heaven. Audio production by Eamon Durkin. This is an offering from our hearts for the earth. We hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and family.